Hope you have your Bibles. Open them with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter number 3. It's always great to see the students coming back from uh, student camp. Um, and I always know when they've been back because th- they really get into the worship when you worship. Uh, sometimes uh, we come to church and we're kind of dead. It's almost like we're coming in so okay, well, it's another, it's another Sunday, okay. But they come in after camp and they are into worship. It's almost like uh, Moses coming down from the mountain after 40 days being with God. He comes down and, and his face is glowing. They're glowing. And it's so great to have you all back, back here with us again today. Second Timothy chapter 3. We're in the middle of a series called Basics, Christianity at Ground Level. We started it last week. And in the first message, Uh, In this basic series, we talked about sin and salvation, how that the fundamental reason Jesus came to earth was to save us from our sins. We have a sin problem. That's fundamental. That's something that we need to understand first and foremost at ground level. Second thing I think that is an essential tool as we try to live the Christian life is we need to recognize the importance of the Bible, God's Word, and how to appropriate that Word into our daily lives. We hear a lot about reverencing God's Word and and how we ought to feel about God's Word, and all that has a place, but I think we need to spend at least as much time talking about what do we need to do with God's Word? How do we study God's Word? And so that's what we're going to address today. The title of this message is Reading the Bible for All It's Worth. It's taken from uh, the title of a book by Douglas Stewart and Gordon Fee. If you're, if you're looking for a book that will help you understand the Bible better, I can't think of a better book than How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by Douglas Stewart and Gordon Fee. We're going to begin this message by looking at 2 Timothy chapter 3. This is Paul's last recorded letter. He's writing it to a young minister, pastor named Timothy. And here's what he says, beginning with verse 10 of 2 Timothy chapter 3. You, however, you know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, sufferings. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured, yet... The Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have, been com- have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it. And how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I want to read to you a quote. Listen to this. Quote, it will soon be possible to transmit wireless messages all over the world so simply that any individual can carry and operate his own apparatus for doing so. Quote, it will 
only be necessary to carry an inexpensive instrument, not bigger than a watch, which will enable its bearer to hear anywhere on sea or land for distances of thousands of miles. One may listen or even transmit speech or song to the utmost parts of the world. Hmm. That quote was made by a fellow by the name of Nikolay Tesla. He was quoted in the New York Times in 1909. He was predicting text messaging capabilities through wireless instruments 101 years ago. How many of you remember the date, December the 3rd, 1992? It's really an earth-shaking date. It's a date that everybody needs to remember. Now, I know you all remember the 4th of July, July the 4th, the day that we're celebrating today. But how many of you, how many of you remember December the 3rd, 1992? That day is important because there was a fellow by the name of Neil Papworth. He was working at a company in England And he picked up a wireless device and he sent the very first text message. The message was, Merry Christmas. He sent it to his work colleague whose name was Richard Jarvis. Merry Christmas, the very first text message ever sent, 1992, December the 3rd. You can tell this morning that I'm enthralled with text messaging don't quite understand it. I'm just now getting into it. I I really am just now getting into it because I didn't want to pay for it. I mean, I have text message capabilities. Some of you text message me regularly. I don't have a text message plan, so I don't open a text message because it costs me about, oh, a dollar. But I've decided to get a text message plan. I'm not going to tell you what it is because some of you will bombard me with text messages. So I'm not going to tell you about it. Text messaging is something that I'm, it caught me off guard. First time I ever heard of anybody text messaging, I said, why in the world would anybody take the time to text message when they can just pick up the phone and call somebody? Makes no sense to me. And then it was explained to me that kids who are in school like to text message because the teachers can't hear them talk. And I thought, well, that's a bad thing. And so text message has just exploded. I'm telling you, back in 1992, if somebody had come up and says, Jimmy, you need to invest stock in text messaging systems. I would say, "Mm, that's not going to fly. It's just not going to fly. Instead, I will invest in the Edsel. Now that's going to fly. I wouldn't have been a good stockbroker advisor. Text messaging. But text messaging in its various forms has been around a long time. You could go back and you could make a a case that the Gettysburg Address that Abraham Lincoln delivered was a text message. You could make the case that on July the 4th, 1776, the document that was approved by Congress and signed by the first two of the signers of the Declaration of Independence was a text message. On June the 11th, 1776, the Continental Congress appointed a five-member committee to draft a a resolution of uh, independence on behalf of the colonies. There were uh, two men that you've 
probably never heard of and who basically never had anything to do on the committee. And then there was Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, and Benjamin Franklin. The committee of five decided to let, to let uh, Thomas Jefferson do all the work. And so he drafted the first copy. And once he had reworked it, and we now know through digital photography that there were some words he changed. You may have heard this week. Throughout the Declaration of Independence, several times the word citizens is mentioned. Our fellow citizens. And in the original, there's uh, a lot of thumb wiping out there around that word. And they have, they have done layered photography and found out that in the, in the first, first draft, instead of the word citizens, Jefferson had put the word subjects. And then upon looking at it again, it sounded too much like uh, being a royal subject of England. And he took his thumb and he blurted it out, sometimes while the ink was still, still wet, and, and wrote on top of it, citizens. And when he got his draft finished, his text message finished, he, he gave it to Ben Franklin and John Adams. And, and you remember that great statement that says, we hold these truths to be self-evident. Jefferson's first draft of that was, we hold these truths to be sacred and undeniable. Ben Franklin didn't like that wording and had it changed to self-evident. Wiped out the word sacred and said self-evident. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. The Declaration of Independence, a text message that was approved by Congress on this day, 1776. John Adams and Thomas Jefferson went on to be political enemies. They hated each other. They would would, uh, secretly campaign against each other. When John Adams was the second president of the United States, Thomas Jefferson got so angry at him that he would have he he would pay people to to write anonymous articles in the country's paper slamming John Adams. And John Adams, in turn, would criticize Jefferson. And then when they became old men in the last 10 or 15 years of their lives, they decided to start writing each other letters, a wonderful correspondence between Thomas Jefferson and John Adams writing letters, these old rivals, these old, two old uh, great legends of our country's founding became the closest of friends, writing back and forth, encouraging one another in their old age when they were too uh, ill of health to even get up and get out of their own homes. And they would write these letters of correspondence. And finally, on the 50th birthday of the Declaration of Independence, on July the 4th, 1826... Thomas Jefferson and John Adams both died on the same day after having over a decade of text messaging correspondence. But some might contend with justification that text messaging has been around a lot longer than our republic. A good argument could be made that the Bible is a text message to the world. That it is a text message from God. And you say, wait, wait, wait a minute. Text messaging has to be short, concise messages. I mean, the Bible is way too long. 1,182 chapters. That's way too long for a text message. But when you consider the fact that the oldest book of the Bible, it may date all the way back to 3,000 years ago. And as recently as as just under 2,000 years ago, you realize that this long message of the Bible was communicated over hundreds and hundreds of years of time. A text message at a time that God revealed 
to writers. Peter says that the Holy Scriptures were written by men as they were being carried along by the Holy Spirit. Paul says that the Scriptures are God-breathed. God breathed them into and through the biblical writers as they faced crises here on earth. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul urges Timothy to study God's Word. Study the Scriptures. The question that I want us to address today is how do you do that? I mean, I know people who, whose only devotional time is basically this. They get up and they search for their Bible and they dust the dust off. And then they just mm, open it up. And wherever it opens, they'll read a few verses and say a quick prayer, maybe if they say a quick prayer at all, and they'll close it up, and they've done their duty for the day. How do you study the Word of God? The Bible says that the Word of God is sharp, more powerful than a two-edged sword, and it pierces to the very depths of our hearts and souls. So we know that there is a benefit from studying the Bible. The question is, how do we do that? And I want to try to help us by, I want to give you a a step-by-step process. Now, this is not the only process that that you may want to adopt, but this is one that that I favor in terms of studying this text message from God. This is a step-by-step process to help you read the Bible for all of its worth. All right? Are you ready for this step? Very, very simple steps. Number one, select a passage of Scripture to study. Select a passage. Now, my favorite method is to, is to study a whole book over a course of several weeks or months. And I'll tell you why a little bit later. But regardless of whether you select a whole book to study, say, over six months times or whatever you do, select a passage of Scripture. Now, at this point, I discourage people from selecting a verse at a time. If you just go verse by verse this early in the steps, what you're going to do is you're going to leave yourself vulnerable to what I call proof texting, which is you pull out one verse and you draw from that verse some things without considering the verses that are around it. That's a very dangerous thing to do. It's a very dangerous thing to do. So I encourage you to select a whole section. Now, this is not a, a, a concrete law, but here's what I suggest. I suggest you look at a section of verses or, or a passage or a couple of three paragraphs. And usually they will, they will consist of anywhere from five to 25 verses. Now, that's not in stone, but I, I would encourage you, select, you to select a passage of Scripture between five and 25 verses. Select a passage that deals with one particular subject matter. Okay? So select a passage of Scripture to study. The second thing that I would suggest you do then is once you have selected a passage of Scripture is take the time to study the historical background, that is the history of the book in which the passage is written. Study the historical background. This won't take that long, but I will tell you this is the one step that most people want to forego. This is the one step they want to leave out. And when we leave out a a study of the historical background of the passage and the book that the passage is in, we run the risk of totally misinterpreting everything. For instance, 
Let's say you want to study the Old Testament book of Jeremiah. You and I cannot understand the book of Jeremiah apart from the history of the Babylonian invasion and siege of Jerusalem at the end of the 600s and the beginning of the 500s BC. If you don't do at least a little bit of background research on that history, you will miss what Jeremiah is really saying. Another example, we cannot understand the book of Daniel in the Old Testament and what Daniel says unless we have a good understanding of the 70-year Babylonian exile of the Jews. That 70-year period when they were taken over into Babylon and they were kept, they were held captive in Babylon. You have to understand the historical background of a book in order to understand it. In the New Testament, there's a little book toward the end of the New Testament called 1 John. If you study the background of 1 John, you'll note that at the end of the first century, when 1 John was written, there developed within Christian churches this idea that all flesh, anything physical was evil, and only that which is spiritual was good. And they carried that belief to a different level and said this, because everything that is physical or flesh is evil, and only that which is spiritual is good, Then when Jesus, who is God, came to earth, he could not have been in the flesh. He had to be only a ghost-like person, a spiritual person only. And so they denied the physical presence of Jesus Christ and furthermore denied the physical bodily resurrection of Christ. And so if you know that historical background, as you go into studying 1 John, you'll understand what John says in 1 John chapter 1. Verse 1, listen to what he says. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched. This is what we proclaim. You see, all of a sudden, what John is saying takes on added significance because you know the background of his statement. You know that there are people to whom he's speaking who believe that Jesus was not here in body, but only in spirit. That he rose from the dead, not in body, but only in spirit. You only get that if you do a study of the historical background of that text. So select a passage of scripture, 5 to 25 verses as a, just a, a loose rule of thumb. Second, do a, a historical background of the book in which the passage is written. And then third, ask this question about the text. Ask this question. What is the main subject of this scripture passage? What is the main subject of this scripture passage? Now, When you're looking at a passage of Scripture, 5 to 25 verses, especially the longer verses, the longer passages, those passages will will touch on several subjects. But I want you to notice the, the step there. I didn't say identify a subject in the passage. I didn't even say identify a main subject in the passage. What I said was identify the main subject in the passage. You see, the Bible writers, they knew what they were doing. And God was inspiring them, moving them along by the Holy Spirit. And, and they're not just going to, to uh, run circles throughout a paragraph, going jumping from one subject to another, to another, to another. Every passage will be anchored by one main subject. 
And as you select a passage of scripture and you read through that passage several times and you, you, you study it word for word, the thing you want to get out of it, first off, is this. What is the main subject of that passage? If you were to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, one of the easiest chapters uh, in which to determine and identify the main subject. Obviously, the subject is brotherly love in a church setting. Brotherly love in a church setting. So love is the main subject of 1 Corinthians 13. Last week, I preached to you from Isaiah chapter 59, the entire chapter. As I looked over that chapter, the one thing that kept coming out to me was, this is the main subject, human sinfulness. That was the main subject throughout Isaiah chapter 59. That is a a, a very, very important step as you study the Word of God. Identify the main subject. Now, follow that up with this question. What does this passage teach about this main subject? What does this passage teach about this main subject? And then go through the passage again. Go through it very slowly. At this point, you can go verse by verse if you want to, but don't do it before this point. If you do, You're going to take it out of context and you're going to miss it. Once you have selected the passage, studied the history, identified the main subject, then ask, what does this passage teach about this main subject? Now, let me let me go back to the passage of Scripture from which I preached last Sunday, Isaiah chapter 59. Once I identified the main subject, which was human sinfulness, I went back and I said, "Okay, what does Isaiah 59 teach us? about human sinfulness. And what I did, I I took out just a, a piece of notebook paper and I began writing down every single answer that I could see in the text, every answer to that question. Now at this point, let me just, let me just caution you about something. The temptation that every one of us face in studying the Bible is this. We get some idea out here That someone has told us, or we read it somewhere, or someone that we respect believes a certain thing, and we get it out here. Now, we didn't get it from the Bible. We've got it out here for some way, and we like whatever it is that we've read or heard someone say about a certain subject. We like it, and we want it to be in the Bible. We want it to be there. And so we'll take this idea that we got from outside the Bible and we will we will take it to the text and we will try to cram it in the text. Oh, look what the Bible says. The problem is it wasn't in the Bible. We got it out here from uh, Dr. Seuss and we pushed it into the scripture. And all of a sudden we want to make Dr. Seuss a scriptural concept. Now, Dr. Seuss may say something that's scriptural. He may. I don't know, green eggs and ham, I don't know, maybe not. But here's the deal. You don't take something out here and push it into the text. You go to the text, find what is there, and pull it out. You go to the text, find out what is there, and pull it out. And so I went to Isaiah 59 asking this question, what does Isaiah 59 teach me about human sinfulness, which was its main subject? And I jotted down five things. And they became the skeletal outline of my message last week. And here are the five things. Number one, 
I saw that this passage teaches that everybody has sinned. I also saw, secondly, that that sin has separated us from God. Now, let me take that point number two. I listed all five of these things, and I found all five of them in that text in answer to the question, what does this text teach me about human sinfulness? But let's take number two. Our sin has separated us from God. Where did I find that? If you open up your Bibles to Isaiah 59 and look at verse 2, here's what God has said through Isaiah. He says this. He says, your sins have separated you from your God and your iniquities have caused him to not hear you. So it's pretty clear. You look at number two up there. Our sin has separated us from God. I pull that directly out from what? Isaiah 59 verse two. Okay. Do you see where I'm going here? You select or identify the main subject of the passage. And once you have done that, then you ask the question, what does this main, what does this passage teach about this main subject? Uh, Isaiah 59, what does this passage teach about human sinfulness? If you want to go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, uh, where the main subject is love in a church fellowship, what you want to ask is, what does 1 Corinthians 13 teach us about love in a church fellowship? And then you write down every answer that you can find in the text. All right. Now, when you've done that, when you have written down all of those answers, I would encourage you, and this is not one of the steps, but I would encourage you with each of the answers you get to stop and ask two questions. Number one, is what I just wrote down true? Is what I just wrote down true? And second, is what I just wrote down really in the passage? Is it really taught by the passage or is it something that I dreamed was there or I carried with me there? Those two questions. Is it is the, the, the statement I wrote down true and is it truly in the passage? Ben Witherington is a, a minister. He had a fellow in his church come up to him one day and he said, um, he said, Pastor, I, I part of my uh, one of my side jobs Side hobbies is breeding dogs. And he said, uh, I had somebody come up to me and he said, I love to breed dogs. But he said, I had somebody come up to me one time and they said to me, you know, the Bible forbids you from breeding dogs. And so he said, I looked at the scripture passage that they were talking about. And sure enough, it tells you that you're not to breed with dogs. And so he said, uh, so he said, I, 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 I have stopped breeding dogs. And really, he was reading and he was reading from the King James Version in the Old Testament. There was a place where and he wasn't really talking about uh, human beings breeding with dogs. What he was talking about was he was telling the people of, of uh, Israel do not have relations with a person who is not a believer in the one and living God. And and the writer of that Old Testament passage likened those people who didn't believe in God to dogs. And so he says to them, do not breed with dogs. But the guy took the verse out and he says, you know, obviously I'm not supposed to be breeding dogs. I run in sometime to uh, ladies who have either have have their hair bobbed up or their hair is all the way long down to their ankles. You, ever, you, you may see. Some of these ladies, great ladies, nothing wrong with the ladies, but they, their church, the church they attend, reads Paul's first letter to the Corinthians where Paul says that women are not to cut their hair. Don't cut your hair. 
It's a shame for a woman to cut her hair. And so they take that literally and they never cut their hair. I'm looking around our room here today. I don't see a lady who believes that way. But that is what Paul said. How are we to interpret that? Well, the fact of the matter is that in the first century in Corinth, there was pagan worship. The pagan worship also included uh, sexual relations with prostitutes in the temple of Aphrodite, right in the middle of Corinth. And you knew those, those prostitutes on the streets because they shaved their heads. And so Paul said to the ladies in the church at Corinth, he said, look, don't cut your hair because people will think as you come into the house for a worship service in the Christian service, as people see you, they're going to think by your hairstyle that we're doing the same thing in here that they do in the worship service for Aphrodite in Corinth. So you see, you have to be careful. You have to know the history and then be careful not to take a verse out of context. All right, number five. Once you have asked, you've selected the passage, you've identified the main subject, you've asked the question, what does this passage teach about the main subject? And you've written down as many answers as you can find. You've asked two questions. Is this, is this statement true? Is it truly in the text? And when you've concluded that all the answers you have written down in final form are out of the text, then the fifth step is you want to search the Bible for any other passages that address this particular subject. Search the Bible for any other passages that deal with this particular subject. Why do you want to do that? Because you want to make sure that the things you've written down are not contradicted somewhere else. Or at least your understanding of what's in the passage is not contradicted somewhere else. Because sometimes you can read one single passage, and that's the only passage you read, and you will think that that passage teaches some certain statement, only to find that a different passage gives you a different understanding of that same statement. And so you want to compare Scripture with Scripture. Last week, whenever I was looking at Isaiah 59 about human sinfulness, and I drew the conclusion that everyone has sinned, that our sin has separated us from God, I I then decided to compare that passage with other passages. For instance, Romans chapter 3, which teaches about the sinfulness of humanity, where Paul says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Or 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, where he says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So compare Scripture with Scripture to make sure that what you've written down about your passage of Scripture jives with what other passages teach about that subject. And then a final, a final step in this how to study the Bible for all it's worth. Pray through your answers. You've identified the main subject. You've asked, what does this passage teach about this subject? And you've written all those answers down. You have questioned yourself about those answers. You've compared Scripture with Scripture to make sure that what you've written down doesn't conflict with what the Bible says elsewhere. And now you've gotten your final list of answers. And I, and I urge you to take the time just to stop and pray through those answers. I go back to Isaiah 59. I had those answers down. And I went to God in prayer and I said, Lord, I've read your word this morning. And your word has taught me what I already knew. And that is that every one of us have sinned and I am no exception to that rule. And Lord, I know 
that there was a time in my life when because of my sinfulness I was lost and separated from you. And I also know that even though I'm saved now, and even though I have a relationship with you that cannot be severed, there are times when sin in my life disrupts the fellowship that I have with you even now. And Lord, I try. We try to live right. But Lord, I find myself like the Apostle Paul in Romans 7. I know what I ought to do, but what I ought to do, I end up not doing. The very thing that I hate doing, I know I shouldn't do, I end up doing. Oh, wretched man that I am. But the end of that passage in Isaiah 59 said that God looked and he tried to find somebody. He couldn't find anybody to... To, to deal with our sin. And so he decided to come do it on his own. This is Isaiah. Five, six hundred years before Jesus ever came, Isaiah was saying, was quoting God as saying, I've looked everywhere for somebody to deal with the sin, can't find anybody, so I'm just going to come deal with it myself. And we know, we know that he came through the person of Jesus Christ. And so I said, Lord, I'm so grateful to you that you came in the person of Jesus Christ to die for me, for us, for our sin. Pray through the passage. It'll do a couple of things. First of all, it'll help cement what the, what the scripture says. It'll help cement it into your mind so that you won't forget it so quickly. And the second thing it'll do, it'll, it'll enliven your prayer life. It'll keep you from giving in, getting into repetition. Oh, God, bless everybody who's here and bless everybody who's not here and forgive everybody all whom our duty binds us to pray for and bless all the sick and bless all the well and bless all the preachers and bless all the folks that are not. <laughs> Lead God and direct us. Amen. You know, I guess that kind of prayer is better than no prayer at all, but not much. Praying through the scripture, praying through what you find in the, the, the word of God, the scripture text, helps, to, helps keep us from being repetitive and redundant and worthless in our prayer life. God has given us a text message. Don't do with his text message what I have tended to do with text messages sent to me. Ignore it. Or feel like it's too costly to listen to it. Ladies and gentlemen, it's too costly not to. God's word is his love letter, his declaration of independence, his Gettysburg address, his text message to us. Study it. Apply it to your life. There are two things in God's word that we are really made aware of, among other things. One is that we're in sin and we need a relationship with Christ to resolve our sin problem. Over camp this week, we had two students who invited Christ to be their Savior and Lord. At VBS, a couple of three weeks ago, we had several, several children gave their lives to Christ. Baptized two of those this morning. Have you had that kind of experience? Do you know Christ? Have you invited Christ into your life to be your Savior and Lord? The Bible teaches us that that is foundational. We're going to, in a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to sing. 
If you need to receive Christ, I urge you, forget about singing. Just, just step out from where you are and come to the front here. And we want to pray with you and help you pray as you invite Jesus into your life. Maybe you are a Christian, but something in your life has deprived you of fellowship with God. You know you're saved or you think you are, but there's something in your life. There's just, I don't know, you've gone through a a cold time in your relationship with God. And maybe you just want to come and, and make a commitment to renew your fellowship with Christ. Maybe you need to join our church. It's important to join the fellowship of a church. The writer of Hebrews says that we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. When Paul wrote letters, he did not write letters to Christians who weren't members of churches. Do you realize that? Do you hear me? He never wrote a letter to a Christian who wasn't a member of a church. He always addressed it to the church. Now, if God cares enough to inspire his writers to write to a named church, why would you not think that it's important enough for you to be a part of a church? Join the church. It'll be a blessing to you and it will sure be a blessing to us. Maybe you have a need that I don't even address, but you've been dealing with it for some time and maybe there's something you need to do with it this morning. The invitation is a time for lives to be changed. And this one is for you. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for really making it simple for us to study your word. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to see... That while, yes, it's important to revere the Word and to to believe certain things about the Word, all that is fine, but Lord, none of it is as important as actually studying the Word. We, We really show how much we respect Your Word when we study it. Lord, I can tell you that I love Your Word all day long and never open it, but my actions speak louder than any words that I say to you. Lord, there may be some people here who just need to make a commitment to get back into the study of the Bible. There may be people here who need to receive you as Savior. Lord, you know every need in this room today. Lord, somebody needs independence. May your spirit work and may lives be changed. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.